Hello, this is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine, and this is our third podcast. This podcast will interview Sonny Landreth, the famed guitarist. He has a new album out, a new live album. And also Andreas Newman. He's the director of American Valhalla, a new documentary on Iggy Pop and Josh Holm and how they got together for the post-pop depression album. So it shows the making of and them going on tour. It's a wonderful documentary. highly recommend it. And, and Andreas will talk about um, how it was to deal with the creativity of these two men and put it into a documentary. But anyway, we'll be right back after this message, and we'll be talking to Sonny Landreth about his new live album, recorded live in Lafayette. Be right back. Hey, I'm Ronald Webb, and this is Patrick Prince. And together we host the Goldmine Radio Hour, the show that features the latest issue of Goldmine. The Music Collector's Magazine. Tune in Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on CygnusRadio.com. Well, we're on the the phone with Sonny Landreth, and Sonny, you have a new album out. Um, It's a live one, and it's the first one in 12 years, right? Yeah, man, I'm beginning to lose count there, 11 or 12 years, but uh, I guess it was time to do another one. Why Why such a long time? Because um, I've seen you live, and it's uh, it's a really good thing to see uh, in here, so I think uh, I think the live stuff is great. Well, I appreciate it, man. Uh, I, I don't really have an answer to your question. I just have uh, kind of followed the muse and hope... Uh, going down the right path but it sure felt uh sure felt good this time around well the album's recorded live in lafayette and how, how did you choose all the songs uh how'd you choose the songs for the album because you wanted to try something a little different with the songs right right you know and um it was actually fun kind of going through that process a bit last year i just kind of started um i wish i could say i had figured it all out of in the mastermind of a plan but I had kind of a, a template, and um, some of the songs I knew that I, I wanted to do, like um, the instrumentals with uh, my trio that we do every night, and um, like Brave New Girl and Uberesso, Milky Way Home. Then others um, I knew with our guests, uh, Steve Kahn on keys and Sam Broussard on guitars, I knew they would be you know, amazing on anything they did, and especially to add <clears throat> more layering with um, some of the other songs, like even Walking Blues, and, and in particular, um, uh, Back to Bayou Tash. But what really got interesting was the acoustic material, and I, and I thought it would be great to kind of go back to how some of those songs started because I think a lot of songwriters would tell you the same thing, uh, guitar players anyway, that it'll start out on an acoustic guitar just to get an idea and you start fleshing it out, you know, and experimenting with parts and getting ideas. And, and then you take that and you start building on it in the studio, for example. So in, in keeping with that, um, and the belief that a good song can be interpreted in any number of ways, that that's kind of the, the way I approach some of those songs. Um, 
like you know was well what would be really interesting with a song that was electric before but would have uh, its own voice in terms of the ele- uh, an acoustic approach to it <clears throat> and what I found is that some of those were kind of surprising in that I, I felt like they spoke better uh, and, and really uh, Creole Angel is probably the, the most surprising but when I started thinking about it we actually cut the basic tracks on that song like that. Mark Knopfler was playing a national resonated guitar and we built the, built the track around that. That was a big part of the um, rhythmic feel of that song. So it goes to show you. <laughs> well, I love the way you lead off a of blues attack and I love the way that you did it live here. And um, I keep on playing over and over all this one, over and over again, this wonderful guitar solo that you have about halfway through that. Um, you really make your guitar talk and sing and <laughs> a lot of different, uh, a lot of different uh, noises coming out that are quite beautiful. Well, I appreciate it. That's awesome. And I, you know, that song was definitely a song to begin with. The original version was all the, the, that was the title track. I ended up calling it Blue Attack. And, um, and I, we, I'll never forget, we had recorded all the tracks on the album, and we were one song shy of making it like the length it needed to be. And I literally woke up in the morning. I was living out in the country, and it was a good little bit of a drive to the, to the studio. And I woke up in the morning with a song in my head, and I literally wrote it en route to the studio and I got there and, and the engineer I was working with at the time I said man I've got this idea for the song city thing and I just started playing and he, and he he's oh that's great I, yeah well, we gotta get that and so we we did and then um, overdub uh, Merlin Fontenot one of the great Cajun fiddlers that had a really unique swing style and I think I got Tommy Como my friend played mandolin on it so it was very much an acoustic piece, but very different. Uh, very, very. And in fact, the song made its way into the set many, many years later um, in the 90s. And we had an electric version that, in fact, um, when we when we did um, South of I-10 for BMG, we did a version of Blues Attack that was just released uh, exclusively in Japan. So that thing, that thing's been floating around for a while out there somewhere, and we played it through the '90s, you know, in our set. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's cool to come back to it as well and to, to find its own momentum again like this. And it, it sure has been fun to play. So there's there there is a a rendition on a Japanese album then. Right. Wow, that's pretty yeah. cool. Um. Well, I guess that, you know, to me, that kind of like shows why you are called, you know, and I hate terms, but King of Slidico. But you kind of, yeah. you kind of embrace that term now. Uh, I guess I don't have much choice. <laughs> Everybody's using it. So uh, it was not my idea. I, it's it's kind of cool. You know, I like it. I like, um, I would have probably liked it if, if I had stayed. Of course, for me, I get maybe I'm just a little too. Um, I don't know, too 
the acting, but when you think Slotico, Zotico, that was the idea, you know, which is cool. But I mean, I'm, I do. It's it's more to what I'm playing than than that. Uh, but that's cool. I mean, you got everybody wants to find a name for something. There's, and it's kind of a natural thing to do, and um, that's as good as any. And that's kind of cool. So, where did it cut? Co- where did it come from? <laughs> a friend of mine, a journalist, a good friend of mine who's also a journalist and a player, he came up with that for. An early article, man, back in... Well, actually, it was for the Outward Bound album, I believe, in 1992. And he came up with that for... Um, I don't know if it was the bio we did or he wrote... I think it was a piece in Guitar for the Practicing Musician, that magazine. And uh, Pete Prown and those cats. And uh, I don't remember the connection exactly, but... Todd mentioned it, or he used it, and it got it got picked up on. And I mean, it's just one of those things that just caught on slowly but surely, I guess, uh, entered the slipstream of consciousness somehow. Well, it's worked, and uh, PR <laughs> definitely picks up on it. I noticed that's how they uh, promote you, which it's it's a good it's a good thing. I think it's a term of endearment. So I I I think it's yeah, that's cool. Now, you said Key to the Highway. If you've ever had a theme song, that would be it. Maybe you can explain more. Well, I think because so many of my heroes have done that song. And, uh, and well, first and foremost, it's, to me, in my mind, anyway, it's one of the greatest blues tunes of all time. I mean, people could argue about that all day, and I, I would never get in an argument about it. But I'm just, that's one that spoke to me early on. And, um, Big Bill Brunsey and, and other heroes, uh, Little Walter, and everybody did a version of it. You know, Muddy, everybody, BB, uh, and um, so that it, that had a, a lot of meaning for me. But as what happened is over the years, and then others like on the Derek and the Dominoes album, and so forth, so with Eric and uh, Dwayne, and some of the people covering it. Um, but we had actually had our own arrangement at one point in the band I had. And, and it just always, you know, you cycle back around and I'd be in another band and would come up. But uh, that one probably in particular, too, because as I would d- develop more as a, as a musician, as, a, you know, coming up with new techniques on slide guitar, I would bring that back in to some of these old songs. And that one was one of the main ones. So it's kind of cool when I look back at how I first started playing it so many years ago, how much it's changed to the way it is now. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's a great affirmation, you know, just to recognize that it's come so far for me and, and those songs keep inspiring you. That that's that's probably the more important point. Um, they stand the test of time, and they they keep continue to be inspirational. Well, we have a, a blues column called Flashback in our magazine for Goldman, <laughs> and it's it's basically about collecting old blues recordings going way back. Do you do you yourself? Uh, collect blues some of the old blues records oh yeah man i had you know and this number 
I still got some of them around here. I, I don't mind. I'm, now I'm going to have to get my turntable out to get a new power amp. Now that we're all making vinyl, which I'm really excited about. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. What do you think about the resurgence of vinyl? Oh, I love it. I think it's awesome. The one thing I will say, though, um, and I think this is changing more and more. Um, a lot of the groups or artists are taking their digital masters and then they're just sending that to the, um, to, to, you know, the plants for vinyl. So what we did this time is, um, my mastering engineer, Jim Domain in Nashville at yes, master, great, great name. Um, he, uh, he has a separate chain that he does for vinyl specifically. And and because what happens is uh, over the years, <clears throat> and I fell victim to this too, and I don't, I just don't relate to it anymore at all. But um, everyone wanted their CDs to get louder and louder, and and what you, you can make it louder, but at one point you're just it's kind of hard to explain technically, but you're basically just you know crunching numbers. It's um, and it becomes at one point it becomes unpleasant. Uh, but by that time, it's it's way louder than any vinyl album would ever be. But louder doesn't bad. And so what happens is that doesn't translate well with the needle when they're uh, cutting the lacquers. So what we did uh, with Jim, he's an expert at this. So he uh, and he goes way back with vinyl. He had a lot of history with it. So he he eased up on all the limiting and the compressors uh, that are used specifically for mastering and um that way it breathes more and then the uh engineers at the plant technician can then they can make that decision and adjust the volume to which best suits uh, their system with the stylus to cut lacquer because when I, all that signal hits it from the digital realm the net result of that is kind of a boxy sound. It doesn't sound near as musical as when you cut it specifically for analog and for vinyl. So we did that this time around. And you did it for this uh, recorded live in Lafayette? Oh, good, good. I have to keep my eye out for that. Um, now, obviously you've inspired many a guitarist. That's why I wanted to ask you... Um, what were some of your, what were some of the guitarists that inspired you? Um, maybe you could oh, give some. Yeah. I had more heroes I could count, but I you, <laughs> you have to, you know what I mean? It's just when you when you love it and, and it's just, you discover somebody that has such an influence, you just, you want to eat it all up and you're just looking for more. And that's what's great about being young too. You can take it all in. And, well, we um, have this but, column. We have this column called 10 Albums That Changed Your Life. Um, maybe you could give me five? Yeah, because what I would even say, I mean, I, I look back now and have the advantage of, of um, an overview in hindsight that, you know, the ones I listened to that actually influenced me so much as to find my own path. And that would have to be Chet Atkins, that's how I learned how to finger pick, finger style, his, his approach. And then uh, listening to the Delta cast like Robert Johnson um, slide. Uh, because when I put the two together, 
that's what really uh, got me um, going in the direction to begin to develop my own sound. Because I was really comfortable with a lot of different, uh, you know, styles and genres. And that's great. And it's great to be versatile. But you can get, um, you can get to going in too many directions at once. You know what I mean? And, and it doesn't. It doesn't sound unified. You don't really have your own sound. Um, and so what I did when I finally got into the slide thing, I realized at one point, and with my songwriting too, slide guitar helped me to sort of crystallize all of those different influences into a unified sound that was my own. And I realized that, and then I just kept working on that, nurturing that, so to speak. But that, yeah, it used to be Chet Atkins because of that, so the Delta Cats, particularly Robert Johnson. Um, then in, in the span of a year, I heard both B.B. King and Jimi Hendrix. And, and so that was huge. Uh, and Clifton Chenier, who was, you know, of course, the great accordion Zydeco master. And, um, but all of that, uh, that played a pivotal role Um and, and this is more I could go on and on about. Did you like? Did you ever like uh, Elmore James? Was he an influence? Oh yeah. yeah. And then see that was for me. Elmo was his voice too, and how he, the sound of his his electric was so. I mean, can you imagine when they first heard that sound? I always try to imagine that, like when Muddy Waters and all of them left Mississippi and they made their way to Chicago, and then he plugged in. You know, first time he had that band with Little Walter. <laughs> what I've been like, nobody's ever heard anything like that. And um, Sonny Boy and all that. Well, uh, Elmo would be like the equivalent on Slide, and uh, uh, just such a powerful sound. And his voice was so incredible. And always, that's the thing that, that really struck me about him that call and response thing that BB was the, probably the ultimate master, but the, the way that Elmo did it was so electrifying. Now, what, what's next for the band? Are you going to be, are you touring? Or are you? Yeah, we sure are. Yeah, we're out doing the deed, you know. It's one of the great things about when you put a new um, album out, then you want to get out and support it. And, uh, and brought us some, um, um, you know, attention from people, and they want to check it out. So it's all cool. It's, it's a good, it's a good environment for creativity, uh, frankly. And, that's fun. So we're we're the way we came about this, the concept for this album, in part was from the live shows. Obviously, the actual, you know, having two sets where we come out, we do the acoustic thing, and we set up a front line. And, I don't know if that's even a term, but we have set up the acoustic instruments because I'm playing a resonator guitar, and then a drummer in lieu of the of the in this, in this, you know, the drum set, he's playing the cajon, which is a percussion instrument he sits on. And it's real cool. It's, you hit one side of it, it kind of sounds like a kick drum with his hands, and he hits the other side. It's got a snare inside of it. So we put two mics on it. And what that does, there's no, it just opens up the high end. So there's a lot of space. And that's what I like about it. And then Dave, and Louis, he's playing his, his Fender bass, his P bass, precision bass. He's playing a ukulele bass. 
I mean, you would believe how the the what a huge sound that little thing makes. He brought that to the studio on our last album, Bound by the Blues, and I fell in love with it. We ended up using, you know, like four tracks. Strings are uh, some kind of synthetic material. It's nitec. It's some part nylon, part, part something else. But it's a, it gives it a real upright bass. It's a rubbery feel to it and sound. And so it, um, it, it's kind of like an upright bass sound crossed with something else. <laughs> but it's um, so we do that and we play. This, take a short break. They strike all that. Then we we set that in front of the back line, which is all our, the amps and the full drum kit. And then we come back out and do really well for us. And that's, what's, um, that's what put us into motion to have that become the live album. Because at one point, I realized, wow, you know, I didn't know if we were making an acoustic album or an electric album. I couldn't make up my mind, and we kept adding songs. I said, well, that worked really cool. What about this? You know, well, that worked cool. And uh, next thing I know, we had enough material. And it really wasn't until we got to the end of the last night of recording, I realized, I man, we have a double album here, and um, we should just do both. And um, so that's what we did. And that's what we're out playing the shows. With my with my trio. So you pl- are you playing the same set list as uh, recorded live in Lafayette, or are you? Well, some of it, yeah. I mean, um, but we're already kind of evolving in that regards. We've already changed a few of the songs, but yeah, mo- the bulk of the set is is what's on the album. But I mean, that's 90, 90 plus minutes, so it gives us quite a bit of freedom to move, and and it's it's good to change it up. You don't want to do the exact same thing every night. Um, it's good for us in the audience, in particular when we'll, like last week we played um, two nights at the Triple Door, which is one of my favorite venues in the in the country out in uh, in Seattle, Washington. And so with two nights back to back, it's it's good to kind of change it up, you know. Well, I hope you include Blues Attack. That song is wonderful. Oh yeah, we start every night with it, so it's become our it's become our navigational, you know, some get, make our way through the night. That's cool. That's wonderful. Hey, thanks, Sonny, for taking the time. Oh, you bet. I appreciate and it. And good luck Come with on. the album on the tour. Uh-huh. Thank right. you so much. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye now. Okay, that was Sonny Landreth. And we're glad to have Sonny on here. And if you can, pick up his live album. Record it live in Lafayette, it's called. It's a great album, and we're going to play one of the cuts from that, in fact, Blues Attack. And there it is, Blues Attack. Check out the fine guitar work here. Blues 
Okay, so we're on the phone with Andreas Newman, and he is the director of the new movie, American Valhalla, which is about Iggy Pop and Josh Holmes' post-pop depression, uh, the making yes. of, and the tour. Um, how did this come about, Andreas? How, how did this, you knew about the, the beginnings of it, about mm -hmm. those two contacting each other, and then you decided to film it. No, it's it's actually it's it's a it's a funny story because um, I I know Josh uh, like for years here socially in LA and we we always kind of I always was uh, we, we're having lunches and dinners and I always let's let's do something together we both said and um, I remember that that lunch we had in Hollywood and he said okay I, I'm I I might be doing something with Iggy and I said oh all right cool I'm. I'm down for it. So, and then, um, and I didn't know what it was, you know, he's just said it like I do something with Iggy. So 
whatever that is. I didn't ask anything more than that, <laughs> as I do. And um, the next thing I hear is like he called me. I was I remember I was in the car and he called me. Hey, can you come to the desert tomorrow? It was like three months, three months later. And um, so again, I didn't ask much. He said, like, "Can you sh can you shoot Iggy and us in the desert tomorrow?" And I said, "Sure." And this this actually this this I, and lots of people have seen that that resulted into a very cool photo shoot, uh, which kind of. Um, nailed the visual signature now, like the whole yeah, the visual, visual identity of that post-pop depression album was kind of born there in the desert. And it was the last days of recording with Iggy in the desert. And so a pure photo shoot. And it turned out so well that that Josh said, hey, I think you got the right angle on this. Um, since I'm kind of an outsider as well in, in, the, in, the, of the rock, in the rock world, right? So like I'm not like the rock and roll photographer. That's why he, he actually... I think that's why he liked my my angle on it because I wasn't since the album was done in secret, as you know, um, I wasn't I was a factor which wasn't the, the the normal choice kind of right. So and live it live it different. So that anyway, it turned out very well, and then we started. So we said, okay, let's now since we have decided to continue, we're releasing this album, and we will go on tour and select it places let's document everything and that's what we did so that we didn't really do it for let's make a documentary we might make something out of it or we just keep it for ourselves and it turned out to be now in the cinema which is fabulous which i never expected really right and and where did the idea of josh writing a journal come in was that something you and him talked about or that just happened um, organically actually actually this was josh this was this was before I came to the party as well, because he decided to, he told everyone involved, guys, this is, this only happens once and we should all do a journal. I'm not normally doing a journal, but everybody was kind of led by Josh to do it. And it turns out then become our, one of our backbones or like the backbone of the documentary because everybody reads their journals and including emails from Iggy to Josh to try to lure kind of crawl under his skin right as he says it's like to excite him about this project so and that's that's all that materials we're using to to tell that story of two guys coming together and making something not necessarily okay that's the Iggy documentary so more like a two creatives meeting and doing something great together yeah and you can see josh seemed intimidated by this project with iggy at first to the point where he sat on this uh, envelope of creativity that Iggy sent him, and uh, he even called. He said he he was kind of a dick about it that he didn't return uh, a call for about three months. Um, but he was probably you know overwhelmed with the idea because this was one of his idols, and yes. I thought I thought that was an interesting part of the story of how he was coming to terms with it. Yeah, it was. I mean. Imagine, I mean, you, you're, you're a, you're a musician on Josh's level, and you, at some point, you started, and you're, you're, you're in, you're in punk rock, and you reference those, I mean, those guys like Iggy, and, and then, like years and years later, with 44, the, the phone rings, or like the, the mail, the mailman shows up and brings a FedEx from Iggy Pop, which is there to inspire him, get him interested, and that's pretty, like, wow, you know, and um, I think he. 
you know, he he took it in, and there's so much things happening in 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 Josh's life, and as a as a producer, as a musician, as a band leader of of Queens of the Stone Age, of like member of Eagle of Death Metal. So all this has has to have its right time, and then this kind of shocking thing thrown into his world, and having to commit then to say, okay, I have to stop everything I'm doing now. It took all over a year this whole process so wow and it's something to be said about josh and the desert he seems to find this infinity with the desert surroundings Mm -hmm. and you you uh caught that rather well with the filming of the bike and him talking about bringing desert dirt to the burbank studio yeah uh, where they ended the album um so (laughs) did you get a set what what is it with him in the desert? Does he? <laughs> yeah, this, the thing is, so, so first of all, so he's, as we know, he comes from the desert. So that's for him, not like, let's go in the desert. It's more like, let's go home, nearly. And and so for me, for me, I've been living for 10 years in, in Los Angeles and working here as a, in, 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 the, in the creative biz and photography and films, etc. But I've never been to Joshua Tree. So... That was my first trip. The first photo shoot was the first trip to Joshua Tree, and then, and you immediately, when you go out there, you you feel this is kind of it's an it's a it's an interesting environment, very inspiring because it's so quiet. There's no no distraction of energies, and like this, the nature is so powerful. So if you put yourself into that place and not in the noise of LA, like where you be walking out a studio and you're like drawn into the social aspect of a, of a Hollywood, living in Hollywood, but there you just go outside the studio and you, you hear the wind and you hear the your your feet crushing on the sand and and that's kind of how they put themselves away from from everybody and and I think that took a little bit the pressure off and this is what what the people like there like to like and that's why Josh inspires a lot of people like the Arctic Monkeys have done there in that studio as well their record one of their records and it's just just okay place of focus but highly inspiring through the the nature and the environment i think well the great thing is that uh, both josh and iggy are uh, like poets um yes. josh said something great i mean it's great listening to iggy uh it's almost like you could listen to iggy for hours because he is he's an artist he he has this artistic sensibility where he's not just a singer, he's he's an artist. You you can feel that he's into all types of art. Yeah. And, and but Josh said something interesting. Musicians are superstitious sailors. I thought mm-hmm. that, that was an interesting line, <laughs> especially when yeah. they're out there in the desert. <laughs> exactly with the with the boat in the in the in the sand, right? Like the, which is which, funny enough, is there, right? Like it's not a sailing boat, but it's a little yacht there parked in Rancho, which just sits there in the desert. And it's a, it's a, it should be in the sea, but it's sitting in the sand. And, and you see it in the film. If you have, if you, it's like when we fly over, it's always like that, that boat. But as being a superstitious sailor is, I know, I mean, it's like, it's a, this, the, the creative way is hard, right? And there's so much stuff you come across and you have to, you have to make the right decisions on the way at all times. Otherwise you might go the wrong way, but it's like everything in life. Right. So, but musicians, obviously they, 
a artist and then an artist is drawn to lots of as a creative drawn to lots of flowers and 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 honey let's say and not, then not honey and like you can just got to stay on track and, and decide what is the what is the most important for me creatively now to do and then just do it without thinking about the money or the the whatever fame goes with it. it's more like about artistic expression and i think that's that's how we was the spirit of the documentary as well like we just observed what's there and we didn't just go there and say hey let's make a documentary here's the setup you know like we, we just put if you if you see iggy how comfortably is with uh in his hammock there in his hammock like it's just it's just it's, we asked literally it was josh's josh's as well josh's when we were in miami doing this interview he's like iggy where's your where's your favorite place in the house you know and then oh yeah, i like that and then okay let's do it over there but nobody has ever done it in there because it's kind of weird it's it's difficult to set up it's half in the jungle half in the water there like you know where do you put the cameras and so it's not make doesn't make things easier but that was the place and we did it and I think it comes across how comfortable he's in this interview. It's like in really opening up to, to our, our friend Anthony Bourdain there in this case. And he, yeah, I he thought Anthony, Anthony Bourdain was a good inclusion. He, he he's always, Anthony has a nice way of interviewing people. Very personable. He's never yeah. out of his element. He, you feel like he's known these, whoever he interviews for a long time. Yeah, um, he was a nice inclusion, and he, I like how you didn't. Like it wasn't, he shifted in and out of the documentary, yeah. which is nice. It didn't have like this rule that he had to be in it constantly. I like how he appears and disappears in it. And he, Iggy really opens up to him. And yeah. the way you filmed Iggy was very intimate. Close-ups, um, yeah. him and Hammock. I thought that was very well done. And Thank you. Thank you. I also like the way you did the um, black and white stills um, in the studio, live. Yeah. I thought that was a nice touch, too. Thank you. Yeah, this is like, you know, I always, my, my style as, as a photographer is very uh, real, but I, I like to, I like to use this for lenses, which kind of distort reality or make it more like, okay, the the less I see, the better sometimes, you know, I, I sometimes pre prefer to break the rule and just show a shadow instead of like, oh, you have to put the light on his face. And it gets so so much more intense and you, you leave people, leave it to their own interpretation. And like, it's more emotional. And he's like, but he don't show ex exactly what's there. For example, when we go through Iggy's house there, you see it's slightly out of focus. It's just, you don't see it quite, but you see a little bit. I mean, it, and it's, it's, it's kind of done so you don't 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 get so literal about it. It's you know. I've heard from other directors. comes together. I've heard from other directors as you shift from studio and interviews and documentaries to live performance. It's like a whole different animal, and yeah. uh, setting it up, setting the cameras up. <laughs> did you find that to be the case? You know, we did. We did. We have different approaches in the live performances. First of all, as you see in the editing, we're we're cutting from we're cutting from Paris to Berlin to Hamburg to Royal Albert Hall and, and back and forth within the same kind of song. And that gives you kind of the, the sense of, of like traveling as well, like through those cities. But to answer your question, it's we did monster 
to shoot like with like 15 cameras and like the whole spiel you know which was the royal albert hall which was as well released on dvd um but the rest of the concerts we always did very very indie you know like in the 70s with handheld cameras and like just don't don't and and you know and and don't don't make it like okay this has to be now like that because we, we're we're on with television rules and whatever like we just I told all my guys when there were most of the things I'm filming all by myself. Actually, the, the interviews are made the interview with uh, with Josh in the in his studio is it's only me and him. That's why his face is sometimes out of focus because I, I run two cameras and the sound myself. And my philosophy is always like, okay, if if you with the people and there's no lighting guy and there's no sound guy, there's no guy with some duct tape around his belt just standing around, you you just get a different intimacy and a different interview you know and and i think you see that with josh and this is how we try to keep it very small team but at the concerts coming back to your questions sometimes big crew but most of the time in the three or four guys you know just doing like a, a handheld stuff some handheld someone trying to grab the essence of like more direction of it and then then technically okay this is now correctly captured or whatever well american valhalla i strongly recommend it um, and what do you Thank have you. on your agenda next? Um, I'm working with Josh at the moment on the on the new Queens of the Stone Age album. So I did all the visuals, like the, specifically the photos and the new photos and the, and some teasers you see online. We very artsy black and white teasers. They whizzing around the internet already. And I have various uh, movie projects in mind, which I don't want to talk about yet. But there's like three or four scripts as well, like fiction stuff, which is on the table, which um i'm looking at and it's always the question comes what's what's next but you know how we got to this was already like we didn't know we get get there so i i just let myself fall into things but as well i'm open to look now and when I'm, when you open to look there people there like things show up and there's already some some stuff showed up but um what i'm doing now at the moment is uh working with josh on the queens which is the last three or four months we had a lot of stuff documenting as well the whole the whole of the recording with mark ronson in the studio etc it was a was some fun i have to check that out yeah sometimes the stuff that's not planned the stuff that is a surprise comes out the best yeah absolutely and that was the whole spirit of the whole thing you know we'd never plan you just make sure you have the right ingredients uh in front of you and then let it go kind of well andreas thank you for the time and good luck thank with the you. movie thank you Yep, great job. I'll, we'll talk to you soon, okay? Thank you so much, Patrick. Have a have a good one, and thanks for thanks for the interview. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Okay, that was Andreas Newman, director for American Valhalla, which will be released in theaters Tuesday, July 11th. There's also a premiere in LA um, on Sunday, seven nine. Um, it's a must for Iggy Pop fans and fans of post-pop depression, the album, and also Josh Hom and, uh, you know, Queens of the Stone Age fans will love it too. Uh, but basically the rock fan will really enjoy it. Um, stylistic, uh, a lot of good music, and you should check it out this month. Okay, well, that ends our third podcast. And please go to goldminemag.com to find out more about the magazine. 
and subscribe you can subscribe there we have some deals there we have contests as well and you could also find the magazine uh, at your local Barnes and Noble stores books a million and also independent record stores through uh, URP distribution okay all well, I'll see you next time thank you